Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and today is episode 15, the accuracy of the anti-ribosomal P protein antibody testing for the diagnosis of neuropsychiatric lupus, an international meta-analysis. This was published by Carasa et al. in the journal Arthritis and Rheumatism in 2006. This is going to be kind of a special episode. Typically, I like to focus on one paper, but for this one, I'm going to be discussing essentially a presentation that I did at a clinical vignettes presentation earlier this week. So for background, the ribosomal P is a highly conserved phosphorylated protein on a 60S subunit of ribosomes. The reason we like it is that A, it's pretty specific for lupus. It's not really found in normal controls. And B, there have been a lot of reports that it might correlate with neuropsychiatric lupus. What's neuropsychiatric lupus? Well, Those are the psychiatric or neurologic manifestations that come along with lupus. There's a lot. To put this in perspective, in 1999, the ACR came out with a nomenclature to describe these. I'm going to list them briefly and never do it again. They are central nervous system involvement, including aseptic meningitis, cerebrovascular disease, demyelinating syndrome, headaches, movement disorders, myelopathies, seizure disorders, acute confusional states, anxiety disorders, cognitive dysfunction, mood disorders, psychosis, and peripheral nervous system involvement, including acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy, or GBS, autonomic disorders, mononeuropathy, myasthenia gravis, neuropathy, plexopathy, or polyneuropathy. Neuropsychiatric disease in lupus is unfortunately very common. The incidence ranges from 21 to 95%, depending on how you define it, Though in reality, I think something like 19 to 38% of patients who have lupus have neuropsychiatric manifestations that are attributable to lupus. Typically happens early on in the disease course, and the most common are cognitive dysfunction. The diagnosis is very challenging because there's no pathognomonic test. For that reason, the ribosomal P has become a popular thing to send when people suspect neuropsychiatric lupus. For that reason, the folks behind this paper decided to do a meta-analysis to decide whether it was useful. So I've long been a critic of meta-analyses for a number of reasons. The first and most obvious one is that they make everything opaque. When you read a trial, you know who got into the trial. You know who was excluded. You know what happened to those people. You can easily look at tables that tell you that information. In meta-analysis, all of that is very obscure. The second thing is that in a trial, the data itself is relatively homogenous. You're looking at a bunch of people who are at the same institution, for instance. The same people saw the same doctors. They were treated the same way. And so at the end of the day, even though that's limited and the power is often quite low, you know what was going on. In a meta-analysis, it's the exact opposite. We inflate the power by including a lot of studies. My contention is that often those trials are quite a bit different from each other. So you can never really know what happened. On top of that, the main reason I dislike meta-analyses is I think that they often simply reflect the bias of the literature itself. A lot of the time a researcher will investigate a question and decide that it's probably not going to get published because they didn't find a significant result. Where that becomes problematic is when a researcher finds a result and then gets that published. What happens is the times when there was no result, it gets hidden, and when there was a result, it gets published. So the research literature at large tends to show an effect. We call that publication bias. With those caveats in mind, let's go on and talk about this paper. So like I said, this was a meta-analysis of the antiribosomal P antibody for neuropsychiatric lupus. It was a pretty interesting design. Because there's no research team who had enough patients to have a big enough power, 
these folks decided to get everyone together. Research teams who had previously published on cohorts of lupus were included. All of them were mailed the standardized reporting form and asked if they would contribute data to this study. 14 centers wound up contributing. The data was both retrospective and prospective, and they gave summary estimates using weighted independent estimation and ROC curves. Those are receiver operating curves. The authors of this paper then went on to perform a sensitivity analysis because not everyone who had published on this topic or in lupus was included. So they took all of those studies and they just performed another meta-analysis to see what it showed. A nice thing about this paper is that they used a standardized set of rules. All patients had to meet the 1990 ACR criteria for lupus, and the neuropsychiatric lupus had to be diagnosed by the ACR nomenclature that I mentioned earlier. Investigators were expected to report whether the diagnosis was blind or not, and the ribosomal P was considered positive if it was seen on at least one occasion. So let's talk about the results. Out of 104 investigators who were contacted, 39 wound up replying, 18 could not participate, so they had 14 collaborators in total. This was actually pretty impressive. It included 1,295 patients. The prevalence of the ribosomal P was 18.2%, which is a little bit higher than we've seen in other studies, probably attributable to a higher number of patients of Asian ethnicity. Prevalence of neuropsychiatric lupus was 32%, which fits reasonably well with the numbers that I gave earlier. So of these 14 studies who were included, the vast majority were at university hospitals. The number of patients in each study ranged from in the 30s to, you know, over 200. The vast majority of patients were women, and patients came from all around the world. There was an Italian cohort, a Belgian cohort, Greek, Slovenia, Turkish, Chinese, Japanese, Chilean, Argentinian. Quite eclectic. For some reason, there weren't any American cohorts, which isn't necessarily a weakness, but I found it kind of peculiar because a lot of the authors were American. Then finally, out of the 14 studies, in 11 of them, the people who were diagnosing neuropsychiatric lupus and the people who were confirming and investigating the study were blinded, which is a nice strength. Before we go on, we should also mention a big weakness. There was a lot of heterogeneity between the studies. So what do I mean by heterogeneity? Well, the prevalence of neuropsychiatric lupus varied widely from 6% to 93%. That goes back to the problem I was talking about earlier, where these are not the same patients. The amount of psychosis or other manifestations also varied widely. So even within the studies, the manifestations themselves were not equal. That being said, with those caveats, what did they find? Well, they found a weighted sensitivity and specificity overall of 26% and 80%. Those are pretty bad numbers. If you looked at psychosis or focal deficits or just diffuse or various combinations of all of these, it didn't really get better. Like I said earlier, they also went on and did a meta-analysis to do a sensitivity analysis and make sure that their findings were true. For this part of the study, they looked at 38 further studies involving 3,713 patients. Had they not done this international collaborative effort with all these investigators, they could have easily published this second meta-analysis even by itself. What did the meta-analysis show? Sensitivity of 28% and a specificity of 80%. Basically completely confirmed what they found earlier. This led the authors to say, that this meta-analysis demonstrated with large-scale evidence that the value of anti-P testing for the diagnosis of neuropsychiatric lupus overall or for particular disease phenotypes is negligible. I love that answer because I have always thought the ribosomal P was somewhat worthless. That being said, they found an 80% specificity. I've heard a couple people say that that's not really that bad. It's a B-minus, right? Well, 
Now is when we get into the maths that I was talking about earlier. Is an 80% specificity really that good? Before we go on, I'd like to take a step back. Often physicians in a clinical context are trying to find information about clinical medicine from papers in the literature. Papers in the literature typically will say the ribosomal P is associated with neuropsychiatric lupus, here's a p-value. That's helpful, but that doesn't tell us how to apply this to our patients. So what they then will calculate is the sensitivity and specificity, which I just told you. The sensitivity and specificity, however, are the performance characteristics of the test that doesn't tell you how to apply it to your patient. To apply the sensitivity and specificity to your patient, you need to calculate what's called a likelihood ratio. The likelihood ratio answers the question, how does this test, if positive or negative, influence the likelihood that my patient has disease? So in clinical medicine, when we tell a patient, you had a negative ANA, I don't think you have lupus because of that. We're not using an association. We're not using a sensitivity and specificity. We're using a likelihood ratio. Now, thankfully, you can calculate the likelihood ratio from the sensitivity and specificity. I've been trying to avoid getting too math heavy in this podcast, but this one's worth it because it's short. The positive likelihood ratio, or the increased likelihood if you test positive for disease, is the sensitivity divided by one minus the specificity. The negative likelihood ratio is one minus the sensitivity divided by the specificity. Pretty straightforward. So let's go back to the sensitivity and specificity that we got from this paper. The sensitivity was 0.26, The specificity was 0.8. So if you calculate that out, you get a positive likelihood ratio of 1.3. The negative likelihood ratio is 0.93. For anyone who knows anything about likelihood ratios, you know that that's not good. One is essentially a test that's completely worthless. Somewhere close to zero is a really good negative likelihood ratio. Somewhere close to infinity is a really good positive likelihood ratio. One is not good. So once you have your likelihood ratio, you need to apply it to your clinical setting. This is where things get complicated. So we know that the prevalence of neuropsychiatric lupus is somewhere around 30%. So say I have a patient who comes to me and they have a symptom of, say, psychosis. Well, the prevalence of psychosis isn't 30%. That's closer to 1% or 2%. So does that mean that the pretest probability is 1% or 2%? That's where things get tricky. What if the patient also has a malar rash, their C3 and C4 are really low, and their double-strand DNA is through the roof? In that patient, I'd say that the pretest probability is probably quite a bit higher than 1% or 2%. On the flip side, let's take a patient who has limited cutaneous lupus, has a normal C3, C4, a normal double strand, and has never had any lupus manifestations aside from a rash. Now, if that patient comes in and has a little bit of psychosis, it seems pretty unlikely that it's due to the lupus. In that patient, the pretest probability is probably lower than the prevalence that we'd usually attribute to lupus. You can see how this gets pretty complicated. Thankfully, in this case, the likelihood ratio is so bad, it doesn't really matter. So if we assume that our patient has a 10% pretest probability of disease, a positive test would only change that by 3%, and a negative test would only change that by 1%. That really doesn't change anything clinically for me. Say the patient has a 50% pretest probability of disease. It's just a flip of a coin. The negative likelihood ratio of 0.93 gives you a post-test probability if the patient tested negative of 48%. So going from 50% to 48%, again, doesn't seem meaningful to me. And then finally, say they have a really high pretest probability of disease. Say they're at 90%. 
If they test negative there with a likelihood ratio of 0.93, they only go down to 89%. So does going from 90% to 89% really change anything clinically? To me, the answer is clearly no. Remember that the meta-analysis is more likely to overestimate the effect of a test. So in reality, ribosomal P is probably even worse than this study shows. Since this paper came out in 2006, there have been at least seven or eight cohort studies addressing this exact same question. Most of these were of very small numbers. Remember, our meta-analysis had over 1,000 patients in the first part and then over 3,000 in the second part. There is one study that I want to discuss briefly before we go because I think it really hammers home the point. So in 2011, Hanley et al. published a paper entitled Autoantibodies as Biomarkers for the Prediction of Neuropsychiatric Events in Systemic Lupus. This was published in the Annals of Rheumatic Disease in 2011. It's from the SLIC Consortium. It was a prospective cohort study, which I like. It included 1,000 patients, and they also used that ACR nomenclature that I talked about before. In their study, the prevalence of the ribosomal P was around 10%. They did cheat a little bit. They used a number of different models, and they tested all of these without making any adjustment for multiple hypothesis testing. Kind of questionable when you do that you make it more likely that you'll find an erroneous result. So what did they find? There was no significant positive association between antibodies and the first occurrence of neuropsychiatric events overall or events attributable to lupus. So in the best, largest meta-analysis to date and the best cohort study to date, the ribosomal P is worthless. They did put in one caveat, which is that there was an association between psychosis and the antiribosomal P. The hazard ratio was 3.92. That's a decent hazard ratio, but let's dig into that a little further. In one of their figures, they actually gave us the numbers for how many patients tested positive for the ribosomal P. That's 95 out of 1,000. We already kind of knew that because they told us the prevalence. They also gave us the number of true positives, which was 4 out of 95. That is pretty bad. So of the 95 people who tested positive for the ribosomal P, only 4 of them actually had neuropsychiatric lupus. They also gave us the negatives. 10 people tested positive for the ribosomal P, but didn't have neuropsychiatric lupus. Already you can see the problem. We have more false positives than we have true positives by a pretty wide margin. I don't want to get into the math too much, but you can calculate the sensitivity and specificity from those numbers, which are 29% and 91% respectively. And from there, you can calculate what the positive likelihood ratio would be, which is 3.2. That's better than one, right? But remember, in this cohort, we kind of know the pretest probability. It's around 1.4%. It's not very likely. What happens if you apply a positive likelihood ratio of 3.2 to a pretest probability of 1.4%? You get to 4.3%. Again, that is just not clinically meaningful. So to summarize, in order to find four true positives, that's patients who tested positive for the ribosomal P and actually had psychosis, you have to generate 87 false positives, and you have to test 1,000 people. A, that's expensive, and B, I don't want to be the one that has to tell those 87 people that they tested positive for an antibody that tells me that they may become psychotic. Just not a fun conversation. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Instead of talking about one paper, I decided to talk about one test and a couple papers that address the question. I may do this again in the future if I have a similar presentation that lends itself well to it. I'd love to hear your feedback if you have any thoughts on this paper or any of the other podcasts that we've done. You can find me on Twitter. Our handle is at EBRoom. So one more thing before I go, 
At first, I was kind of opposed to putting in theme music, but I've gotten a lot of feedback that we should have some. For those who haven't seen it yet, I really like the Marble Machine music video by Wintergotten. They created a machine that makes music with marbles. I reached out to the band, and they kindly offered to let us use it for the theme song for the podcast. I hope you all like it, and if you don't, please let me know. Thanks so much for tuning in. Looking forward to talking to you again next week when we discuss the Gyacta trial, which pits the IL-6 inhibitor tocilizumab against placebo in the treatment of giant cell arteritis. Thanks again. Have a great week.